So now what I'd like you to do is to turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. And as you're turning there, you and I are going to find that God is doing a powerful, powerful work in the heart of a man who, well, it's described as becoming king at the age of eight. And a powerful revival breaks out in the land of Judah when he is 26 years old. So I want to talk about what God does, but in particular apply it to those students that are about to be returning to their campuses in the coming days, as well as to younger adults that are somewhere in this age group that Josiah finds himself in, because what you and I are going to learn in this study today and next Sunday pertaining to revival, God is not so much interested in the years of our lives as in the yearnings of our hearts. What I want to do is to start with the end in mind, and so in this 34th chapter, in today's study, I'm going to pick it up, if you don't mind, in verse 14, and take it down through verse 21 to get a sense of where today's study is headed. In this 34th chapter, Josiah, whose grandfather and father have not walked in God's ways and God's will, have departed. Josiah is plucked out of this ash heap, so to speak, by God's grace, takes a stand for his Lord. And now in verse 14, we're told that while they were bringing out the money that had been taken into the temple of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses. Hilkiah said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. And he gave it to Shaphan. And then Shaphan took the book to the king, reported to him, Your officials are doing everything that has been committed to them. They have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the supervisors and workers. And then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. Now, that's an understatement. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his robes, and he gave these orders to Hilkiah, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Abdon, son of Micah, Shaphan the secretary, Uzziah, the king's attendant, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the remnant in Israel and Judah about what is written in this book that's been found. Great is the Lord's anger that's poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written in this book. So this morning what I want to do with you is to talk a little bit about the rediscovery of God's word for our lives. Let's look to God in prayer. 
On our Father, what we want to do now as we come into your presence is to never take your word for granted. You describe it as sharper than any two-edged sword. What gets dulled is not your word, but our ears and our hearts. What we need, Father, is a fresh encounter with the Holy One that so resonates through the course of the week that we almost have this yearning to regather the following Sunday to carry on. But we gather to scatter to be able to take your truth and apply it in all the various situations and share it with all the various people that you bring into our circles. So, Father, we thank you so much for this word. What we're asking is that in a very powerful way and in a very personal way now, you reveal yourself to each one in these services. Your holiness, your righteousness, your grace, your love. Engage these minds of ours. Warm these hearts of ours. And shape again these wills of ours, Father. Come here to see Jesus, him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at the scene that appears now in front of you. Pews are somewhat emptied. There are gatherings throughout that sanctuary. The setting is Sweeton College. And by all accounts, a revival had broken out among the students in the year 1995. The journal Christian History picks up on it and has chronicled the account and various pictures of students that are gathered together in huddles of prayer Microphones were set up in the aisles to people to be able to share what God was doing in their lives. And so powerfully was God at work that the College Church of Wheaton across the street was opened up, and the president of Wheaton, as well as the senior pastor of Wheaton uh, Church, pulled the students together in great numbers and began to walk them through the passages such as today's passage on revival as well as the great stories in the course of Christian history pertaining to revival. Revival is a pivotal, pivotal element within Second Chronicles. Describes great movements of God when God's people seem to have been spiritually dormant, callous to what God was doing through his word, when all of a sudden there is a collective group of people, sometimes small in numbers, who become so burdened by their culture and by what's happening in their land that they begin to seek God. Before long, there's this ripple effect, and it begins to move outward and affects greater and greater numbers of people as well, which, of course, is what's needed in the land. And the spiritual then shapes the cultural 
and the cultural shapes the political. What stands behind all these revivals is the classic verse that appears on the screen in Second Chronicles 7.14, that if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. And the land of Judah is sick, and they are in desperate need of the great physician to bring his healing work into that setting. What I want to do with you now, once again, is to look at still another revival that is found in this very powerful book. The story is pivotal. It's rich with insight. It relates to 2013 living. And in part one of this two-part study of this 34th chapter, today what I want to do is to draw three significant distinctives here on what happens when God's people collectively seek the Lord. And the first flows out of verse 1 down through verse 7, and we're going to phrase it like this, that when we seek the Lord, number one, we follow God's ways, removing spiritual obstacles. Josiah comes into this world facing spiritual obstacles, even generational obstacles. His grandfather Manasseh came along and basically began to undo what the great-grandfather Hezekiah had done in revival in the land. Manasseh reinstated idols in the precincts of the temple of Jerusalem. And then Josiah's father came along. His name was Ammon, taken from the Egyptian sun gods named Amon-Re, which spoke of, of course, of the idolatry in the land of Egypt. Egypt was once again on the ascendancy, and so it was the natural tendency of the Judaites to begin looking again towards Egypt for political help. But you and I see here now is that Josiah will break rank He's saying to himself, in essence, no matter what those around me and what those did before me have done, nonetheless, what I want to do is to seek my Lord, not seek what they think I ought to be doing in relationship to the Lord. So we pick it up now in verse 1. And Josiah, astoundingly, was eight years old when he became king. Never underestimate the age of an individual as to what God can do. He worked within the womb of Elizabeth to cause John the Baptist to leap for joy in the presence of the Messiah Jesus who is being carried in the womb of Mary. Again, the issue here is not the years of our lives, but the yearnings of our hearts. What's the yearning of your heart this morning? What obstacles are you having to overcome to get to the point where you can zero in and focus upon the one who matters most? My word. 
He's eight years old. He becomes king. And so in that time period, in those days in the Middle East, you're placed under a regent who schools you then in in the education necessary to become king of a land. And so now, most likely, Josiah is being schooled by people who are going to appear in this 34th chapter. He's certainly not getting schooled by his father. He's been assassinated politically because of his, his political viewpoints. Josiah now is on the scene. And you and I are told here something significant in verse 2. In fact, three major marks stand out in the second verse. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He walked in the ways of his father David. He was not turning aside to the right or to the left. For as verse 2 puts it, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David. Not Ammon. David. Not turning aside to the right or to the left. In other words, he has a fixed focal point. Do you have a focal point? And is it a fixed focal point? Christ the risen one ought to be our fixed focal point. The one who keeps us from veering to the left or to the right and keeps us on the path that God has prescribed for our life. Even though others are going to want to distract you along the way. Now, I'm saying this particularly with students in mind and for those in the 20-something age group because Josiah inches into his 20s in these verses. And what you're going to find is that there are going to be not only competing voices, but competing focal points that can distract you not only verbally but visually. And like a disciplined runner, you've got to stay true to the course. Josiah is true to the course that God has placed him on. Are you? He walked in the ways of his father, David. For as Longfellow put it, lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime and departing leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. Footprints that perhaps another sailing o'er life's solemn main, a forlorn and shipwrecked brother, seeing shall take heart again. Now, you and I are going to find that in Second Chronicles, there's a lot of shipwrecked brothers, so to speak. But Josiah is looking for the footprints that march him toward the cross of Messiah. The one born to die, who would be of the line of Josiah, who's described in the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1. But what you and I find here is that 
According to Proverbs 13, verse 20, he who walks with the wise grows wise. And that's exactly what Josiah did. And if you find yourself in Josiah's years, remind yourself, he who walks with the wise grows wise. In verse 3, in the eighth year of his reign, now he's 16. Time marches on in these verses. While he's still young, he began to seek the God of his father, David. Mark that word, seek. In the Hebrew, it carries with it the idea to seek with care, to inquire, to search out. In other words, it's an individual that's going to put some time and energy into this and not be satisfied with the superficial. Are you? He's 16 years old. And already his heart is in forward drive and he's accelerating. And and his intensity is is such that it grips our minds and our hearts because what you and I find is that in his 12th year, now he's age 20, in the 12th year he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, Asherah poles, carved idols, and cast images. Why is that so significant? At this young age he's willing to do what his grandfather was unwilling to do, what his father was unwilling to do, and what those around him were unwilling to do, he begins a process of removal. Removing from anything, removing anything and that which would keep him from keeping his focal point in Messiah Christ Jesus to come. Now ask yourself, as you're seeking God wholeheartedly, what needs to be removed? Destroyed. Replaced. Because you know you're handcuffed to that particular thing that has certain value to you emotionally, relationally, materially, physically. Now Josiah then begins this removal process, and he he knows his history most likely because Ahab and Jezebel had imported this idolatry into the northern sector of Palestine, and it has now made its way into the very precincts of the temple of Jerusalem under the auspices of his grandfather Manasseh and father Ammon. But even though he's young, He's not going to allow that to be an excuse for doing what ought to be done. And so now, you and I are told here that under the direction, his direction, the altars of the Baals are torn down, cut to pieces, the incense altars that were above them, smashed the ashrapos, the idols, and the images. And he broke to pieces, scattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them, underline that this. And look what comes next. Verse 5. 
He burned the bones of the priests on their altars. And so purged Judah and Jerusalem. Why is that so significant? Look at this verse which appears on the screen. By the word of the Lord, a man of God came from Judah to Bethel as Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make an offering. The year 931 B.C. Park that in your memory for a moment. Read on. He cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord, O altar, altar, this is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who now make offerings here, and human bones will be burned on you, people. That was 300 years or so uttered before Josiah walked the turf of Palestine. As God's word says, God's word does not return void. A delay is not a denial. Notice then, 300 years of rich prophecy. Jeroboam's long gone. But now Josiah appears on the scene. Josiah has not even been introduced yet to the law being found within the temple. And here Josiah is fulfilling the word of God. That's your God. A delay is not a denial. His word doesn't return void. Josiah is fulfilling what God has called him to do. He is simply seeking his Lord, and when we seek the Lord, we follow God's ways, not the culture's ways. We've got a fixed focal point. And so what he is doing now is removing spiritual obstacles. Ask yourself, what have I got to remove so that I can run unhindered this race that God has placed me in? So in the towns of Manasseh and Ephraim in verse 6 and Simeon, as far as Naphtali and in the ruins around them, he tore down the altars of the Asherah crushed the idols to powder, cut to pieces all the incense altars throughout Israel, and then you almost get this sense of now, back to Jerusalem. Time to go home. Did my work. Finished the removal process. Came across this. Businessman. Lindsey Clegg, he's got this warehouse he's trying to sell. The building's been empty for a long period of time. People on the streets had broken in, smashed the windows, strewn trash around the interior. Thinks it's going to be hard to sell, but he's now showing a prospective buyer of the property, and he takes the pains to be able to say, look, I'm going to replace the broken windows bring in a crew to correct anything here in terms of structural damage, clean out the garbage. It's what the prospective buyer said to him that grips my eyes. Forget about the repairs, the buyer said. Forget about it. 
When I buy this place, I'm going to build something completely different. I don't want the building. I want the site. And that's you, and that's me. If we're new creation people. The old's gone. The news come. I don't want the building. All that stuff you've erected in the past for your own glory. I want the sight. I want you. I want your heart. I want all of you. Does God have it? What needs to be removed? Now, there's a second distinctive here that stands out, and it's found in verse 14 down to verse 21. That second of all, when we seek the Lord, we submit to God's word. Rather, we undertake God's work, rebuilding what has deteriorated. We undertake God's work, rebuilding what has deteriorated. And boy, has that temple, has that temple deteriorated. But you've got to remove in order to rebuild. And so once the destructive work is done, the constructive work begins. And the same is true within our own personal experience. God removes, then God replaces. He doesn't leave you empty. He gives, but prior, he took. He takes so that subsequently... He gives. And now what you and I find here is that taking before the giving, the negative before the positive, the removal before the rebuilding principles are getting worked out. And so now in this 18th year of Josiah's reign, now he's 26. Love this guy. He's got leadership just oozing out of his pores. To purify the land of the temple, he sent Shephra, son of Azaliah, and Messiah, the ruler of the city, Joah, son of Johaz, recorder, to repair the temple of the Lord his God. In verse 8, notice the words he sent. He sends qualified men out with a defined objective. Good leadership is not intimidated. Say it again. Good leadership is not intimidated by surrounding oneself with quality people who come together and do what needs to be done. This leader conceptualizes. He is a conceptual leader. But he turns to others to be operational leaders. He's got the ideas, but now they've got to implement the strategy. So he sent qualified men with a clear objective. But if verse 8 utilizes the phrase, he sent, verse 9 utilizes the phrase, they went. He sent, they went. Now, if you're a parent... You've got to understand how you move from from conceptual to operational. 
If you're a leader in the marketplace, you've got to figure out a way to move from conceptual to operational. And don't be intimidated by pulling together mature people who can make a difference for God's glory. They were probably older than Josiah. They may have even been his mentors. But he sent this nine. They went. And they went to Hilkiah, the high priest, gave him the money that had been bought, brought into the temple of God, which the Levites, who the doorkeepers had collected from the people Manasseh, Ephraim, and the entire remnant of Israel, and all the people of Judah and Benjamin and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In other words, he is a tremendous utilizer of resources, relationally and financially, for the rebuilding of that temple. In other words, now, notice how this is getting tied together. We said, first of all, when we seek the Lord, we follow God's ways, removing spiritual obstacles, the removal aspect. Now we've said that when we seek the Lord, we undertake God's work, rebuilding what has deteriorated, we combine God's ways with God's work, and we combine removing with rebuilding. Ask yourself now, not only what do I need to remove from my life, but what furthermore needs to be rebuilt within my life and around my life to make a difference. Ira Ica was a general during World War II, and he was stationed in Europe. And he went into Great Britain, and he had a plan. He was a conceptual man. He was asked to speak, but before so, a mayor in a particular town in England was introducing him and going to great lengths to tell everybody what a great, great general Ica was. He was. Well, Ica rose, cleared his throat. He was a bit embarrassed. He was a humble man. And then said, until we do some work here, I'm not going to do any talking. When we're gone, I hope you'll be glad we came. Then he sat down. The thunderous applause that lasted for minutes on end. He came to do some work. Now what you and I have to do is to examine very carefully how the work of removal combined with the work of rebuilding, has got to be operative within our own lives. And if so, the seeking principles are alive and well. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, will heal their land, and now we're ready. Now we're ready to embrace what is about to explode in the courtroom, in the king's room of Josiah. Because now thirdly, when we seek the Lord, we submit to God's word, repenting of our our sins. In verse 14, while they were bringing out the money that had taken into the temple of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law the Lord had been given through Moses. Hilkiah said to Shaphan, the secretary, 
I have found, you can almost sense the hushed tones. I found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. And you and I now are stunned. How could they have lost it? They've been so caught up in cultural spirituality. They have missed out on what the sovereign God of the universe has said. God's word's been displaced. And nobody seems to have even noticed. And our great concern in our nation is that congregations get back to the verse-by-verse exposition of the word of the Lord. Not pastoral opinions, but divine truths. Because the scriptural slash cultural shapes, scriptural slash spiritual shapes the cultural, which shapes in turn the political. Gives it the shape of. When did this get lost? Under his grandfather? Father? Shaphan took the book. To the king, reported to him, your officials are doing everything that they've committed to them. They have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord, have entrusted it to the supervisors and workers. And then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king. It's real quiet, I'll bet. Real quiet. Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. Josiah leans forward, I'll bet. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. In other words, Josiah is going to have to come to grips with the fact this is the word of the Lord because all he's been told is that it's a book. And now, if it's, if it's Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Old Testament take about 20 to 22 hours reading with pauses. And I could see how the story of Abraham being justified by faith in Genesis chapter 15 would come bearing upon Josiah's heart. And then in chapter 49, he would find that out of Judah would come forth this king. He's saying, this is Judah, I'm king. And from that line would come Messiah. He's saying, oh my word, it's going to be from my line. And then he would get to the places in Deuteronomy where the curses and the blessings in chapter 28 and so forth are being expounded upon. And now he's saying to himself, this relates to where I'm at in my reign. Where have we gone wrong? So what does he do? Camp on verse 19. When the king heard the words of the law, tore his robes. Fresh encounter with the Holy One. Pulls some strategic people together. Verse 21, 
Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the remnant in Israel and Judah about what's written in this book that's been found. Great is the Lord's anger is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord. They've not acted in accordance with all that's written in this book. He's brought back to what you and I sometimes might take for granted. Word of the Lord. Look at the scene that's appearing on the screen behind me. William Tyndale was born near the Welsh border of England, 1494. Now, 40 years earlier, two significant events had taken place. In May of 1453, the Turks had invaded Constantinople, the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire. It fell to the Muslim invaders. And so all the great Bible scholars left and headed towards England, Great Britain. Secondly, the printing press in 1454 Second important development occurred. Now we've got these Bible students, and we've got the printing press, and along in God's sovereign plan comes Tyndale. Now the Bible in England is illegal to have one in one's possession. And in an attempt to restrain the influence of Wycliffe's followers, in 1408, Parliament had passed the Constitutions of Oxford, which, which restricted anyone from translating or reading part of the Bible and the language of the people without permission from the religious leaders. And men and women were even burned for teaching their children the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments. Tyndale knew seven languages speak him. But he was skilled in Hebrew and in Greek, the Old Testament, New Testament languages. So he went to work with sleeves rolled up so that people could recognize again what Abraham would understand in Genesis 15. We are justified by faith alone. But he's under threat and he's got to leave Great Britain. He goes to the continent, begins to do the translation work Businessmen are going to help smuggle the Bibles back into England. He's got to watch himself. There's English spies all over the place, you know. His Bible is printed, smuggled back in. The first translation of the Bible from the original Greek into English. King Henry VIII, Cardinal Wolsey, Sir Thomas More. They're furious. He hasn't been licensed to do this. Tyndale's works receiving an amazing, unintended boost, though, when the bishops of Great Britain bought as many copies of his translation as possible to destroy them. Destroy them? The price they paid provided Tyndale the desperately needed money to print even more copies. Even the king's wife, Anne Boleyn, begins to read his translation work. 
and values. Tyndale is betrayed. He's arrested. He's brought to the stake. And in his last words, John Fox tells us, he uttered, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. You see it in the upper left-hand Are the eyes of your heart open? God's word doesn't return void. Two years later, look at this scene. It's King Henry VIII. He's now requiring every local church to have one copy of the whole Bible of the largest volume in English translated by Tyndale. These Bibles became so popular, though, that the parish priests had to chain them to the lecterns to keep people from stealing them. That's how much they were valued. And revival broke out in Great Britain. Now what you've done You pulled it together. God's ways are connected to God's work, which is connected to God's word. And we pull all that together, no matter if you're heading off to college in the next days or weeks, or if you've got some years invested in life, and now you're equipping the next generation. Remember, These stirrings of the Holy Spirit, they're not governed by the years of our lives. They're shaped by the yearnings of our hearts. To be continued. Let's stand together. We're awed by these stories, Father. The eyes of Josiah's heart are open. The eyes of Henry VIII are open. But over the course of time, the changeless principle is that your word does not return void. So no matter matter how young or how old we are here, I pray that you, by your grace, do such a powerful, unmistakable work within our lives. It's going to have a tremendous impact upon this region and beyond. And it's going to be solely for you and you alone. For this will give you all the praise. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.